0: This is Bethany Hughes for the National Trust. I love taking train journeys, and today I'm travelling to see a rare treat. The Sandham Memorial Chapel, Stanley Spencer's monument to the forgotten dead of the First World War. Painted over five years, from 1927 the murals draw on Spencer's experiences, serving first as a medical orderly in Britain and then on active service in the Balkans. Now, it was a 20-mile train journey taken when posted with the 68th Field Ambulance in Macedonia on the way to the front line that opened the artist's eyes to a strange and wonderful landscape. Spencer was enraptured by the unfamiliar colours, peculiar lights and visual incidents the impact was profound. And he wrote, I was entranced by the landscapes from the windows. Low plains with trees and looking through trees to strange further plains or fields. And here and there, a figure in dirty white. It was not a landscape. It was a spiritual world. A decade later... Spencer would reimagine this spiritual world on the walls of the new chapel at Sandham. What I'm looking at now is a modest red brick building, but I'm told that when you open the door inside the casket, there are the jewels of Spencer's murals and waiting to meet me I can see outside the door is Alison Payton the operations manager at the Sandham Memorial Chapel
1: hello Alison thanks for coming over hello hello a very warm welcome to Sandom. thank you so much how lovely to see
0: you now it's quite a simple outside but I'm told there are treats in store so can you let me in
1: I should think so yes I should think so follow me thank
0: you okay are you ready for your eyes to be assaulted That is so impressive. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. I love your revealing of it as well. It's very theatrical when the blinds go up, when you suddenly get the light casting on these paintings, which are floor to ceiling in most cases, and so much detail. You start to think that you've seen everything, and then your eyes drawn to a kind of particular bit of, of beauty.
1: It is an overpowering experience. That there's a story to tell, I can tell. So where should we start? The, the paintings themselves aren't in any particular order. All of the paintings here are showing what he did, during the course of his experiences during the war. So what we're seeing almost is a, a diary of what Stanley did every day. But I think always a really good place to start is the painting that we can see up on our left in the middle register, which is the arrival of Wounded at the Beaufort Hospital. And it's a good place to start because that's where Stanley started his career as a medical orderly at that hospital.
0: So what we're looking at are two men pulling open big, heavy metal gates and a lorry loaded with the wounded, as you say. Their slings are almost like kind of the sails of boats. I'll tell you what I've just spotted... The the keys of the man who's opening the gate
1: look incredibly similar to the keys that you just used to open the chapel. Yes, the chap that you see depicted on the right-hand side of the painting is somebody who was at the Beaufort Hospital who terrified Stanley. And he's made him look a bit like a jailer with keys on his left thigh, one of which is the key that we still use to open the chapel today. But the gates themselves were the gates that he described as the gates of hell outside the Beaufort Hospital. How did he get to be a medical orderly here? I mean, what's his backstory before this hospital? Um, Stanley was born in Cookham in 1891, and as soon as it was clear that he had this great artistic talent, he was encouraged by his father, went to the Slade School of Art, where he won lots of prizes, was selling his work, and then, of course, it all sort of came to a bit of a halt with the announcement of the First World War. Stanley and his brother, Gilbert, were both wanting to fight, but Ma Spencer was quite reluctant for them to go because her three elder sons had been sent to the Western Front. But in 1915, they were both posted as medical orderlies to the Beaufort Hospital in Bristol.
0: And so how old is he at this point?
1: So he'd be 24 at this point. I mean, it must have been pretty grim treating the wounded there. I think it was horrendous. He was away from his beloved Cookham. He was away from his art... It must have been a terrifyingly lonely, scary place to be. And underneath this painting of the gate
0: and the war wounded coming in, there's a very, very sober panel painted in a dark yellow ochre, a dark blood red and there's a
1: figure prostate on the floor. Is he washing the floor? Is that what's happening? This is called scrubbing the floors and the figure that you've identified is a soldier who has come back with what we would now call post-traumatic stress but obviously would have been shell shock at the time, religiously scrubbing the floor whilst the three medical orderlies are stepping over and around him. It is a particularly dark image. It's dark because of where it is in the chapel. It hardly ever gets any light. I believe that the corridor in question actually had a window in it, which Spencer has deliberately omitted, perhaps suggesting a darkness in his own mind, that's certainly my personal view, before he came to be enlightened in terms of what he was doing at the hospital. So here it's unadulterated
0: grim rather than the redemption that we often hear talked about in connection to the chapel. Very much so, I mean, it's hard to look at, but I'm glad in a way that he's commemorated that poor, broken soldier who's scrubbing at the floor, as you say, in this crazed froth of soap suds. While he was working at the Beaufort, Stanley Spencer's outlook was transformed by a meeting with Desmond Shute, who'd go on to become a close friend. Shute gave Spencer a copy of Confessions a theological work by the medieval philosopher Saint Augustine. Now, this was a turning point for Spencer because Augustine's words taught him to find solace, and indeed God, in everyday tasks and routines. Here with me now is Amanda Bradley, who's an art historian and Spencer specialist. Thanks for coming along, Amanda. Yeah. Lovely to have you here in the chapel. Do you agree with that? I mean, do you think you can see that philosophy playing out in the paint on the
2: canvas here? Yes, very much so. On the right, as one walks into the chapel, there's this painting here called Washing Lockers. It's interesting because it shows the medical orderlies scrubbing the lockers and Spencer found all these menial tasks, incredibly hard work from a spiritual point of view. He was the lowest of the low, scrubbing all day, got no thanks for it. And St. Augustine, via Desmond Chute, taught him to keep calm and carry on, to use the World War II adage. And what Spencer has decided to depict are everyday scenes, scrubbing floors, carrying kit bags, ablutions, washing the body... Sorting the laundry, so these are all very much manifestations of what Desmond Shute had told him about and how these very menial tasks could bring him closer to God, a sort of inverse transubstantiation, if you like. In
0: 1916, Spencer was posted overseas, where he saw violent action up to the eve of the armistice. The Western Front continues to be our abiding image of the First World War, while the Mediterranean Theatre of Operations can be regarded rather as a sideshow. But Allied soldiers were embroiled for four years, fighting Bulgarian and German troops right along the northern frontier of present-day Greece. Spencer served here with the 68th Field Ambulance. His first task was to transfer casualties from handheld stretchers to the mule-drawn travoys, and later he fought with the Royal Berkshire's Infantry Regiment. In all, Spencer spent two and a half years on the front line in Macedonia before he was invalided out of the army thanks to debilitating bouts of malaria. And some clues to all this can be found high up in the chapel. The whole chapel is lit with natural light, so there's no electrics in here at all, which means some of the paintings right up at the top of the north wall are just tantalisingly far away. Alison, I know that you don't normally let guests do this, but you've extremely obligingly managed to find a very large ladder. Is it okay if I pop up and just have a look? Yes, of
1: course, just for you.
0: So this is the camp at Karasuli, isn't it? That's correct, yes. So this is some of the Balkan detail. Okay, I'm, I'm going up. Well, I'm almost at the ceiling of the chapel, must be 20, maybe 30 feet above the ground. And my goodness, what a privilege it is to be this close to the paintings. You can really see the beautiful definition and subtlety of the colours as they've been laid on. And as I'm standing here, more and more details coming into focus Oh, that's interesting. So there's a figure over there who I presume is it's probably Stanley Spencer himself, spearing through the Balkan news with an old-fashioned, almost looks like a kind of broadsword. There are men huddled around together with their arms resting on one another's shoulders, preparing an enormous vat of tea that two men are carrying in. Oh, and look, because he's mad about bacon. And there are men frying up bacon in little patty cans. Actually, it's interesting because I think he described this as a symphony in rashes of bacon with an obligato of tea-making, and I can see that in front of me. It's very much about the business of war, and yet there is something serene about it. It's almost as if out of all this mud and froth and urgency and chaos, Spencer is kind of willing the human beauty back up out of the earth. Ah, oh, real treat to be up here. But I actually think I'd better... Alison, I didn't tell you this when I climbed up. I haven't got a particularly good head for heights, so I think I might be uh, making my way back down now. Are you holding on?
1: Oh,
0: yes. Oh, terra firma. Amanda, I know that Spencer planned to make a holy box like the medieval artist Giotto's Arena Chapel in Padua in order to house his mural cycle. And when he got the commission, is it true that he exclaimed, What ho, Giotto? Allegedly so. <laughs> I've
2: got a picture here, Bethany, of the Arena Chapel in Padua. And you can see how similar it is in construction to Sander Memorial Chapel. From the exterior, it's pretty much... Austere, like it is here. And as you enter in, there's this sort of wonderful jewel casket of colour and visual array inside. So here you've got the sort of three tiers of paintings at Sandham here. You've got the predella panels and then these arched panels and then what we call the spandrels right at the top. The centrepiece is the resurrection altarpiece, which originally was going to be much more like Giotto's scheme with an arched. Frame at the top, and early drawings by Spencer suggest that he was going to do that. But he decided against it, possibly to
0: keep the architectural integrity of the building. Mm. And I mean, the other big difference is I'm looking at the resurrection scene and. You know, it's demanding stuff in some ways. So there are men half-naked lying on the ground. There's one man caught up in barbed wire, grappling it with his hands. There are mules lying down, clearly the wounded. But this hectic pyramid of crosses going up to the ceiling. So... It's interesting because where it differs to Giotto's scheme in Padua is in with Giotto what you really notice is this sort of redemptive heavenly blue. Whereas here there's a real keynote of brown, so there are yellow ochres and burnt siennas on the altarpiece. Do you think that Spencer was making a conscious point there that he was saying that some kind of heaven could be achieved from within this very ordinary day-to-day mud? He maintained that this was a happy place
2: and it was a place of reconciliation, of coming to terms with what you've done and what you have seen. I think also these browns, these beautiful colours actually, are redolent and expressive of the landscape he fought in. You can see here, like Giotto, Christ features. But unlike Giotto, Christ isn't right at the centre, he's placed right back into the background. And the centrepiece is instead two mules who have fallen with their driver. You can see the wheel has fallen off the travoy. They, like the soldiers, are rising from the dead. And Spencer has so enjoyed the beautiful curvature of the mule's neck. He came to love these animals because he worked with them every day when he was a medical orderly. These mules would sort of carry the
0: patients up the hillsides when they were injured at war. You're an art historian, so you spend your life looking at lovely works of art. How do you feel when you stand here and look at them? Overwhelmed, I think. (laughs) It's an
2: act of genius. And I think there's a great sense of healing and reconciliation, and I think it's incredible for that.
0: I
1: found it very moving coming here, Alison. How do other visitors react? Different people will get different things out of it. Some people come just for the art. Some people come perhaps because they had grandfathers who served in the Salonika campaign. We have a number of visitors from Tedworth House, a Help for Heroes recovery centre, and they've said, as have other serving personnel, that they can see in these paintings, what they still do today. And I think that is a true testament to what Spencer has created.
0: I'm just having a cup of tea in the chapel kitchen with Robert Egger, who's a volunteer here. I know that, Robert, you've served in the First Gulf War and also with the UN in Cyprus. Is there any one particular scene that you enjoy explaining to visitors or just spending time with yourself? It's
3: so difficult because they're all full of good things. Um, every day is different. But almost all of them have something in them which relates to soldiering as it still is. Of course the uniforms change and the equipment changes, but fundamentally the day starts in the same way. People still occasionally have to cook their own meals. People still get sent off on orderly duties of one sort or another. You still see the companionship, at least I hope you still see the companionship amongst the soldiers (laughs) that you see in Stanley's paintings. They're all there. So is the Thousand Yard Stair. Which is quite hard for people to grasp on occasions, but it's there in Stanley's experience. It would certainly be from recent Afghan and Iraqi experience, so people will see that and recognise that too.
0: And have you experienced that 1000 Years stare? Uh,
3: personally, today? no. Thank goodness. Um, I'm quite certain that some of the soldiers who I commanded did.
0: It's not a painting that talks explicitly about the horror and the anger and the and the mess of war. Do you think he was right to approach the subject in the way that he did?
3: Uh, Certainly, He he was. It was his experience, undoubtedly. And the old balance, 98% of boredom, 2% of terror, well, let's represent the... It's wrong to call it boredom. But the 98%, which is not the terror, that was his major experience. And yes, of course, it was right to portray that. Um, What he cut out... Quite deliberately, I think, was the actual war-fighting piece of it. There are no representations in the chapel of anything larger than a bayonet. No rifles, no machine guns, no artillery pieces, nothing of that sort whatsoever. He wasn't interested in glorifying the war part of what he was portraying. He was interested in portraying the comradeship and the underlying individual experiences that all added up together.
0: Do you think it is ever possible to experience... Beauty on the battlefield?
3: Oh, that's difficult. (laughs) That's very difficult. But in a strange way, yes, probably before and after rather than during. I don't think there's much time to think about it during. The grieving that happens afterwards is important, but you can't afford to stop and grieve at the time. Too many other lives depend on it. So, beauty on the battlefield, difficult. Beauty before and after the battlefield, yes.
0: What is that beauty before and after?
3: Um, that's almost entirely based around the people that you're working with, which is what Stanley represents.
0: On the 25th of March 1927, the chapel was dedicated as the Oratory of All Souls by the Bishop of Guildford. This was the same date, the Feast of the Annunciation that Giotto's Arena Chapel in Padua had been consecrated 604 years earlier, in 1303.
1: I'm back with Alison in the chapel. Is it right that Stanley didn't actually come to the dedication ceremony here? That's correct. I think there was concern that some of his perhaps slightly controversial views might upset the bishop. But it's a working chapel today, isn't it? It is a working chapel. We have services monthly here led by our local rector. And do you think that the people who come here get solace from the paintings around them? I think you get solace from the paintings in whatever circumstances you come to the chapel. From a personal experience, our services I find enormously grounding and a great way to start the week.
0: It's been very touching, very thought-provoking to spend time in this lovely chapel and now to come back out into the sunlight with the sound of everyday life all around, the mundane that Spencer so cherished. Sandham is a place that's the product of many places, that grim hospital in Bristol, Cookham and its longed-for high teas, the cicada-filled landscapes of the Mediterranean. This is a work that gives us all the chance to be in many landscapes and in two times at once. But also more than that, I think through it, Spencer, who himself suffered with malaria and whose brother was killed in the First World War, is sending us the most brilliant message, that however much of a struggle life feels to be, somewhere there is beauty to be found, that we're all capable of creating heaven on earth, not just hell. For more information about Sandham Memorial Chapel, including opening times and dates, go to www.nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Memorial Chapel. Thank you for listening. Don't forget this is part of a ten-part series and the other programmes can be found by searching for Bethany Hughes' Ten Places on the National Trust website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I'm Bethany Hughes. This podcast was commissioned by Ivo Dorney and was produced by Melissa Fitzgerald. It was a Blakeway production for the National Trust. I'm Alan Power and I've been exploring the secret history of some of the nation's most breathtaking gardens in the National Trust Gardens podcast. Join me as I explore Sissinghurst Castle Garden in Kent. I'll be discovering how this haunting and world-famous garden was born out of a faded Tudor manor when a famous poet and her diplomat husband made it their home. I can't wait to share it with you, so search for National Trust Gardens on iTunes or your favourite podcast app.